Hey guys, welcome to episode 36 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Like we always do right in the beginning, we want to thank everyone for all of their great feedback. It's really motivating to read all those good reviews, and we're so thankful for everyone who puts the time into writing those reviews or the people who are donating to us. And everyone who's newly donating to us on our Patreon page, we're going to mention at the end of the show. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can leave a five-star review on the podcast platform that you're listening to. It doesn't necessarily have to be iTunes. And if you'd like to donate to us, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash couple. There's also something else we want to ask of you. We're trying to collect stories for our first October episode. Last year, we did a listener story episode where we asked listeners to send in stories to us regarding anything paranormal or involving true crime that happened to them or someone they knew. I really enjoyed doing that episode and we love October and all things creepy. So if you have a story or you know someone who has a great story, you can email it to us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. We already have some great story submissions and it's really looking like it's going to be a great episode. I can't wait. Okay, so without any further ado, we are going to bring you our episode. And right at the top of the show, we want to apologize. We're both nursing some pretty serious sinus infections. So sorry if we are a little stuffy this week. I blame Kay for it all. I did get sick first. I brought it at school, all those germs, and I brought it on home. And I'm sorry. And I feel bad for all you listeners out there. I know there's some people out there in the past that complain about Kay at times. (laughs) I know. Uh, But now you guys have a double dose. Yes, two stuffy people. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into it. In the town of Peel, Wisconsin, three siblings, ages nine, eight, and two, slowly and finally open their bedroom door. They have been locked in by a plastic zip tie that was wrapped around the final staircase rung and then their doorknob. The oldest of the three girls told the others that it was safe to leave. They slowly walked around their house and saw again the reason why they had been locked in their room. The blood was everywhere. The house was so quiet. They saw the body of their mother lying on the floor, stabbed to death. The girls quickly ran upstairs, and it was there that they saw for the first time the body of their father, shot twice, once in the head, with a 12-gauge shotgun. At too young of an age, the eldest girl was given the protection role over her two younger sisters, and she was scared. She was nervous that the killer was still in the house. At the sight of her father, she told all of her siblings to run back downstairs and back into the bedroom. All of the girls ran. They went back to their bedroom and closed the door. She told them that they would wait there until morning, and that by then the killer should be gone. The girls had been in the house when their parents were murdered. They heard it all. The first shotgun blast, then the struggle between their mother and the killer, and all of the screaming that was included. Then it was quiet for some time. They saw the killer walk past their door and back up the stairs to shoot their father once more. The killer came back down the stairs and went right into their kitchen. Shortly afterwards, they walked into the girls' bedroom. We are going to play a game, the killer said. I'll give you snacks and juice, and you be really quiet, and don't leave the room. The girls agreed, because after all, it was their sister they were talking to. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. After she locked her three younger half-siblings into their bedroom, 17-year-old Ashley Martinson had to take two showers to wash her mother and stepfather's blood from her body and hair. She then called her 22-year-old boyfriend to come pick her up. It was Saturday, March 7th, 2015 the day after her 17th birthday. Before she left out the front door, the girl looked around the house. She'd liked this house. It was the former house of Jesse Halverson, the 14-year-old boy who in 1998 
killed his nine-year-old classmate who lived blocks away. Halverson tried to make the shooting look like a suicide by placing the gun in the hands of the young boy. Martinson liked all things macabre. She then shut the door and left. Initially, her and her boyfriend, Ryan Sisko, stayed at one of her friend's houses that lived nearby. However, they left early the next morning. They had asked the friend if they could borrow his pickup truck, and he let the couple do so. It was on that day that Martinson's half-sisters are going to place their 911 calls. Nervous, the girls only called the police and hung up the phone. When police go to check on the hang-up call, they find the body of 40-year-old Jennifer Ayers lying on the living room floor. They check all the rooms on that floor and find in the bedroom three small children cowered in the corner. As the police usher out the children, they tell them that their daddy's upstairs. Based on the story the children gave, the police piece together that Martinson got into a fight with her parents regarding her boyfriend. Initially, the heirs thought that their 16-year-old, who just turned 17, was dating someone who was 18. However, after friending him on Facebook, they discovered that he was 22 years old. Early Saturday, the couple had an exchange with Cisco via Facebook Messenger, where they tell him that they will press charges against him if he has any further contact with their daughter. I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want my... 17-year-old with a 22-year-old. No, no. I mean, the age difference doesn't make a big deal as you get older, but when you think about the mindset a 22-year-old is supposed to have versus someone who's 16, I mean, she only just turned 17, it's two different worlds that they're living in. I look at more of like, why is a 22-year-old, I'm sorry, 22-year-old wanting to have a relationship with a 17-year-old that's most likely still in high school? Well, usually when something like that happens, I mean, of course, there's always going to be like special cases, but usually that happens when the 22-year-old is someone who doesn't have a direction in life and is very immature and still hangs out with people who are in high school. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. It's never really like someone who's getting on the dean's list in college that's like, hey, let me check out a 16-year-old girl. It's not really how it ever works out. Right. So, I mean... No, but, I, you know, when I'm in that situation one day, I would not let that happen, no. No, and of course, as a teenage girl, you're always going to kind of test that. Your father never really likes the person that you're dating. You're lucky if they do, if he's a nice person. But especially if it's someone older, teenage girls always kind of like to do that. Yeah. Especially when we get into Ashley Martinson's life, it kind of makes sense that she would go for an older guy to try and seek that approval because she has had issues with male issues in the past. Gotcha. So after the heirs are going to have that conversation with Cisco via Facebook Messenger, Martinson's going to come home hours later and she's greeted by screaming from her parents. And this is something that the three girls said was not uncommon, that their older stepsister got into fights with their parents all the time. Apparently, Martinson had planned to move in with a friend and had all of her bags packed that day. So when she came home, she was supposed to be picking up her bags to leave to move in with a friend. It hasn't been verified which friend that was, though. However, after finding out about the age of her new boyfriend, her mother and stepfather refused to let her go. They told her to go to her room, and they took her car keys and cell phone away. Now, this is a car that was shared by the family. It wasn't necessarily just her car, so... So before she went to her bedroom, Martinson grabbed her stepfather's shotgun and shut her bedroom door behind her. Her stepfather came into her room and she pulled the trigger. Wow. Yeah. Afterwards, she ran down the stairs towards the living room. However, her mother stopped her on the first landing and confronted her with a decorative knife that was on their mantle. Jennifer Ayers stabbed her daughter in the leg. The two women fought until Martinson ended up grabbing the knife from her mother and stabbing her, what the medical examiner will later determine to be 31 times. Jeez. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, um, before, I was going to say, who brings a knife to a gunfight? Um, we've heard that like a million times. Yeah. Well, the shotgun was left upstairs. Okay. So she so could... she, she shot her stepfather, dropped the gun ran downstairs, but then her mother attacked her with the knife as I'm she surpri- was coming down the stairs. I'll say this. I'm surprised that the mother had, like, the 
if I could say Wherewithal? Like this, I was going to say the balls to like after a gunshot, like let's say you heard the body just like fall to the floor, that she just grabbed the knife and was waiting at the bottom of the stairs. Right. Like, well, I guess she it. figured like either, I mean, if you hear that shot upstairs and you know about the fighting that's been going on, she was probably either thinking, okay, either he shot my daughter or my daughter shot him. And well, either way, she feels confident enough to go up the stairs because she either has the rage of a mother or she knows it's only her daughter she's confronting. That's true. So I feel like that's but why that's she had the confidence. Really, that's Yeah, it's very ballsy, but I like it, it. It is. It is. I give kudos to the mom, though. But unfortunately, Ashley is going to take the knife from her mother and stab her 31 times, which we know is definite overkill. I mean, that's there's rage behind those Oh, stabs. yeah, definitely. We also learned from the three girls, the three younger sisters, that Martinson then, after attacking her mother, is going to go back upstairs and shoot her stepfather a second time. And that second shot is the one to the head. Now, just to be clear about the family situation, the three younger sisters are the biological daughters of Thomas Ayers. So she is just from a previous relationship, Ashley. Right, right. Okay. So the police know that they have a murderer at large here. They canvass the neighborhood, asking about the family and the missing teenage girl. The neighbors are going to tell law enforcement that they don't know much about the family. They had only just moved into the house nine months prior. And this is when it's going to come out that Jesse Halverson used to live in the house. And that was a big case that people of Wisconsin really didn't forget, especially the town of Peel, because it was devastating to lose a nine-year-old child, but then also to have another child sent to jail for it. So it is pretty interesting that these two crimes are didn't happen in the same house, but that was the house of Jesse Halverson. Yeah, that is bizarre. Isn't it? It's very rare that you have that happen. Yeah. So from asking the neighbors, they find out that the heirs had only moved there nine months prior in June, and that in the time they had lived in the house, they pretty much kept to themselves. They say, especially the eldest daughter, Ashley, she was very shy and very rarely talked to any of the neighbors. Eventually, police happen upon a nearby male friend of the Martinsons. When investigators come to his door, he's going to tell them that, yes, Martinson and Cisco, her boyfriend, were at his house the previous night. The couple had slept over. When asked about the state of mind Ashley Martinson was in, he said that she seemed a little out of it, but was mostly talking in whispers to her boyfriend that night about whatever was bothering her. At one point, the boy reveals that he did see slash marks on Martinson's arm. However, he didn't really ask her about it as he kind of assumed that it was her self-harming. He he mentioned it in passing, but she said, oh, it's nothing. And then he figured, okay, she's self-harming because she had talked about doing that in the past. So he kind of just let it go. Okay. So it wasn't really addressed. He then revealed that he didn't know where Martin and Cisco had gone, but he had lent them his pickup truck, which is a little strange. I don't think that I would lend my friend and her boyfriend, her much older boyfriend, a pickup truck to just leave with and not know where they were going or when I was getting it back. But I guess that's teenage logic for you. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think most people would do it. To be honest with yeah. you. It's either a really nice friend or someone who's not thinking too much. Yeah, I don't know about that. I wouldn't do it. So police knew that they were on the move and that they had had a pretty substantial head start. And the two definitely packed their belongings as a lot of Ashley's belongings were missing from the house. So they had their stuff, they had a vehicle, and they had 24 hours. So they could be anywhere within a day's driving radius from where the crime took place. So this is going to launch a national manhunt for the couple. And as they're looking for Ashley Martinson and Ryan Sisko, they're going to start looking a little bit further into what life was like for Ashley Martinson in her house and what kind of person she was. And like most teenagers in 2015, all of that information could be found online. However, Ashley Martinson was not your typical teenage girl. And this is what's going to blow the case up. Ashley Martinson was into what is considered 
goth culture, right? She wore all gothic clothing and her appearance was constantly changing, but she always had dark black makeup on and her hair was either dyed black or red. And this isn't something that necessarily made her stand out too much in her high school in Wisconsin, only because she had a lot of friends that dressed the same way she did. So it did seem to be kind of a big culture within her high school in Wisconsin. So she did have a group of friends that completely accepted her and had the same interests as her and dressed the same way she did. Maybe she was friends with um, Zamgor Lilith or whatever from our uh, oh throwback. Oh my god, <laughs> from episode two. Yeah, maybe they were friends. Maybe she listened to that music. Maybe. That was pretty good, remembering like that? that name. That's I know, impressive. I'm good, I'm good with wow. that, right? I think, I, I think it's, was it Zamgoro or Zam... I don't now know. Now it's going to make me go crazy now, but, uh, you know, we... We'll get back to you. Our hardcore listeners it. know, you know... Episode two, yeah. yes. The painful episodes to listen yes, to. Yes. <laughs> so, we don't necessarily know if this was just a phase that she was going through, but it, she seemed very deep into the culture, and looking at her digital footprint that she left you could tell that this I don't think it was a phase I think that this was the lifestyle that she felt most comfortable in but Ashley's appearances did her no favors when it came to investigations because it may be something that we know because we're younger and we kind of accept it and we know that sometimes it's a phase or sometimes that's just what people like and it's a little bit more acceptable But with older investigators from Wisconsin, this is something that's kind of like a mark against her. Yeah, well, it it paints another picture of her where it, I mean, obviously at this point we know that she's the killer, but it just, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking for. I feel like it just like shows a different light to her that could lead up to the murder kind of thing. Right. It does show a little bit of a darker side that does exist within her. Because one of the aspects of the case that the police and especially the media are going to run with is her blog. In this blog, she coined herself Vamp Chick. So that's what was all over the news. Vamp Chick kills her parents, right? Horror blogger murders her family. She probably like watched Twilight and had like a big cutout of uh, Edward or whatever. She wasn't a Twilight (laughs) fan. No? Okay. So come on, John. All right, whatever. I know a lot about her her likes and dislikes because I found every like page that she could have possibly her Pinterest, her Facebook, her her blog was taken down, but a lot of people had screenshotted it, so I read a lot about her hmm. blog post. All right, so no big cutouts of Edward? No, John. Okay. It's very stereotypical of you to say that. I'm sorry. Some people like Twilight. <laughs> So it's here on her blog that she's going to write poems and stories of being a murderer. And that's what doesn't help her. It's not just dark poems. It's stories and poems of her murdering people. And although the blog has since been taken down, I am going to read some of the blog posts for you, especially the ones that were read during the court trial to give a background about what she was like and what she was into. I'm ready for this. Okay. So let's get back to the show. All right. So are you ready to hear these blog posts? So ready. In what appears to be a poem written five days before the murder, Martinson writes a piece called Unworthy. It reads, Rushing through the woods late at night, deep into the darkest corner, where the agonizing screams cannot be heard, walking into a small cabin, marveling at the sweet horrors of blood that I thirst for. I then take the next victims who were unconscious. I tightly bind them to a low table, awaiting them to wake once more. I clean the dry blood off my tools from a previous session. The last body has been disposed of just hours before, yet I have not been satisfied with the pain, agony, and blood. I bend down as they start to wake. Welcome to hell, I whisper in her ear. Never again will you see the light of day. Wow. Um, This is like a murderer slash like a serial killer in training right now. Yes, that's what it, it, it does seem, it does appear to be that way. Like it's, 
She's always writing from a perspective of someone who's been killing a lot of people. And the victims are always female, which now, I find very interesting. Yeah, I mean, all right. Now, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate really quickly. Mm-hmm. But, like, we could we could chalk this up to her having some sort of dreams and aspirations of being a writer. I mean, I know it's kind she of She definitely dark. wanted to be a writer. She told her friends that she wanted to be, and she wanted to write in the horror genre. So, I mean, it could just be a creative outlet. But the fact, it's definitely creepy. But the fact that we're reading this to you is because we want to give you what was read at the trial and what the media was reading and what people who were reading the case were seeing. So just so you can have a full picture of this story, not necessarily saying that this is saying she's guilty. It could just be her creative outlet, but it definitely hurt her during her trial. I mean, it throws up red flags to people that don't understand her. And this is what's being read, and this is what's being projected about her while the manhunt is happening. Okay. So this is what police believe they're searching for. So Ashley hasn't been humanized yet in the eyes of the people that are putting out warrants for her arrest and searching for her. This is what people are seeing. So that's the reason why we're kind of creating this atmosphere and reading these blog posts for you. So on January 14, 2015, in Murder Madness, she she writes, I'm sitting in this empty room all alone. I can hear nothing, but they're screaming souls. Souls of madness, but not like me. I can hear their innocence. Unlike the monster I am, that no one can see, and what I have become, what I have done to some, someone like me, that no one can see, a psychopath in the dark. And the final one, written January 29th, 2015. Well, it's not the final one she wrote, but it's the final one I'm going to read. So this is kind. Of, this was written when her relationship with Cisco is going to turn into a romantic one. She writes, They say one of us is to blame. You're holding that knife covered in blood. I'm laughing off the pain. Wondering which of us is guilty. If we're both totally insane, could it be we're broken in just all the right places, perforated just so, that we fill each other's empty spaces? A pair of answers to a question that no one ever asked. And when they remove our disguises, all they'll find are two more masks. So it's pretty interesting that she wrote that about her relationship with Cisco. Yeah, it's very weird, and it's dark. Very dark. So other than the poems from the screenshots, I can see from the main site of her blog, one of the categories is called A Tale of Two Psychotic Teens in Love. And I couldn't read it, but what it appears to be is part of an ongoing story that she was writing. So she would release parts at a time. And it began when she first met her 22-year-old boyfriend. So I thought that was pretty interesting, too. I think that this relationship with Ryan Sisko was kind of a catalyst for whatever type of feelings that she had brewing to come out. Okay, makes sense, I guess. Yeah, either either he was help feeding this fantasy or he was good for her and they had a healthy relationship. And then when her parents tried to take that away that caused the reaction right i mean it could be several things not saying that's necessarily bad or good but just i see what you're saying because that's why even in one of her blog posts she says you know i don't know who to blame me or you like that's kind of you know right i mean that's not verbatim but you get what i'm saying the gist of it yeah you know beside her blog post some traces of martinson still exist on social media so like i said before i found her pinterest page and the remnants of a facebook page Both sites claim to pay homage to what she refers to as the emo lifestyle and bands and models that support it. So like all the images she had saved and all the bands were very um, dark messages and some of the poems that she had pinned and some of the song lyrics were kind of just as dark as the poems that she was writing. So they were her influences pretty much. That's what I could see. Okay. So the police had this all. A teenage girl who was into dark things, very dark things, who was now forbidden by her parents to see her 22-year-old boyfriend. 
So on the day she was supposed to move out, she murders them in the house that belongs to another child murderer. It's almost poetic in itself, right? Yeah, it is. It's weird In a weird way. Yeah. So now reunited with her boyfriend, Vamchik, is on the run. And this seemed to be a pretty cut and dry case to law enforcement and the media's dream. They went wild with this. And another thing that's interesting is this case was shockingly similar to another case that had deeply affected Wisconsin. The Slenderman killings. Oh, man. Side note, John is terrified of the Slenderman. And it's so fun to tease him with. It's really not. And I know it's not real. But it still scares me. So I apologize. Okay. I know. One day I'm just going to shock him and not tell him we're doing an episode on the Slenderman murders, and he's going to be very uncomfortable the whole time. Just right now, I'm uncomfortable right now just hearing about it. (laughs) Okay, so if you're unfamiliar with the Slenderman killings in Wisconsin, first of all, there's an amazing documentary that HBO did that you should definitely check out called Slenderman. But I'll just give you a brief synopsis. So this is where just a year before Ashley Martinson kills her family, when two young girls claim that they lured their friend into the woods during a sleepover to appease the fictional creature known as Slenderman. And all of Martinson's artworks of Slenderman were a grim reminder that the state of Wisconsin had another senseless crime on their hands. So the whole image of Slenderman conjures up something different for the state of Wisconsin, right? This tragic crime that took place. And she was very into Slenderman, Ashley Martinson, I mean. So when they thought of the two girls that lured their friend into the woods, they're thinking, okay, Ashley Martinson has the same mindset as those two girls had, because that's the image that was being portrayed of her on the media. And they were both very similar. As far as they were into, like you said before, the macabre. Yes, the very, Things that were things. just very bizarre. Yeah, well, it was a little bit different because the Slender Man murders, the girls were a lot younger. True. Martinson was into darker things because she was older, but I could see them going down similar paths. Definitely. I mean, it was just the only difference was their age. Right. I mean, really. So the community was ill at ease, knowing that Martinson still was on the loose with her boyfriend. Because at the time, they didn't know the involvement of, of Ryan Sisko. The multi-state manhunt ended shortly after police shared the make and model of the truck the couple was borrowing from Ashley's friend, as well as a description of the two suspects. Martinson and Sisko were detained just outside of Lebanon, Indiana, and it appears that the two were headed to Tennessee, where members of Sisko's family lived. The capture of the two was caught on tape. Police pulled over a late model truck and instructed the driver, Sisko, to get out of the car and put his hands in the air. Sisko does so. He is told to walk backwards slowly towards the police cruiser, and he does so. Police handcuff him and put him in one of their cars. Their goal right now is to detain the two and hold them in separate vehicles. Next, three armed policemen approach the truck and are able to arrest Martinson without incident. She is placed, handcuffed, in the front seat of a police cruiser. In a police dash cam video, her interaction with the officer is captured. An officer approaches the car and peeks into the driver's side. He asks Martinson, Do you know what this is in reference to? And she answers quietly, I do. The teen appears to be tired, with unbrushed hair and that look of exhaustion on her face. The officer responds, kind of an idea, and in a quiet voice, barely audible, she responds, I assume it's for the murder. Because the officer could barely hear what she said, or because he was trying to make her feel more at ease, he says, hang on, and he gets in the car and sits next to the teen. He says, you what? And she responds, I'm assuming it's for what you guys are calling the murder. In a surprisingly disarming and assuring way, the officer looks at her, almost with sympathy. And he says, yeah, yeah, for the investigation of that. 
And Ashley tells him, I didn't mean to kill her. And the officer then tells her that they will talk about it later and leaves the front seat. And it was interesting because the officer that the arresting officers that were interviewed, they're going to say that when they pulled the teens over, they were expecting like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing feel, you know, like no remorse, these dark teens, you know? Right. And what they got was something so different than they expected to. We also have to remember here these kids are trying to get away with, you know, I mean, she just killed her parents. They're driving. They're tired. They're probably not sleeping. They're, you know what I mean? They're driving. Right. And it, it weighs on they're you. They're tired. Sure something, something like that has to weigh on you. So. No, I completely agree. So at the capture of the two suspects, investigators from Wisconsin are going to make their way to Indiana as quickly as possible. Detectives from both jurisdictions are going to question the two. The men learn almost immediately that Vamp Chick and her older boyfriend aren't the murderers they were painted out to be by their interests and appearances. Cisco himself is going to admit that he was only just made aware of the crimes. He said at first, when he had spent the night with Ashley at her friend's house on the night of the murder, she only told them that she had left the house after a bad fight with her parents, who were refusing to let her move in with her friend. He believed that this was true because he did have a bitter exchange with Martinson's parents the day, that day, regarding his relationship with their daughter. He thought if they were hurting her, remember all the cuts on her arm, that that, that was something that would supersede the statutory rape charges that they would ever put on him. Right. You know what I mean? That's right, a little course. bit more important. However, once the couple left, left Wisconsin, Martinson told Cisco that she was not telling the truth. She told him that her parents were having another one of their fights, her mother was defending her, and her stepfather was raging against her. She said that her stepfather had stabbed her mother, and in self-defense, her mother shot her stepfather. Unfortunately, she died from her stab wounds, and Cisco was in shock, but they had already come so far, and he said he was in love with Martinson, and he believed her because he knew how bad her parents' relationship was and all of the fights they always had. He then revealed that once they crossed over the Indiana border that Martinson told him she had been the one to kill both of her parents. He said that at that time he was so scared and he thought to himself, and this is a quote here, promise you I didn't write this down. He said, oh my God, Am I dating a psychotic? <laughs> a little too late there, buddy. Yeah. yeah, it's also like, doesn't seem to be the sharpest tool in the shed. Just yeah. going to say that. So he didn't want to start a fight with her. So his plan was to get to his aunt's house in Tennessee and then call law enforcement. Which is pretty smart, I have to say. Right? You always say that, like, don't agitate somebody. Like, get where you're growing and then do something. You know what yeah, I mean? Especially, I mean, this is at this point, you have a murder in your car, so... Yeah. You might as well just wait until you get. we have to go. Well, we'll never really know if that was truly his plan, because the two were detained shortly after he, she confessed to him. So Cisco was only held on charges of breaking his probation. Ryan Cisco had a very long rap sheet of minor offenses, mostly drug offenses, but enough for him to be serving two years of probation. And leaving the state was a clear break of these terms of probation. Investigators now turned their attention to Martinson. Since the murder took place, police had looked deep into the cell phone records and the social media accounts of the teenage girl. Although they found more of the same, like a new story she was writing in which she was torturing a girl, tying her up, ripping off her fingernails, and then eventually lighting her on fire with gasoline. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty aggressive story. They also found a Facebook message sent to Ryan Sisko saying that she wanted to murder her parents, that that would solve all of her problems. Um, It was something around the lines of, like, she couldn't take living there anymore, and that if they were gone, that would solve everything. 
However, some of the records are going to begin to paint a little bit of a different story and reveal that life at the heir's house was not what police initially thought it was. In a text message conversation between Sisko and Martinson, it shows a conversation where he is going to tell her, happy birthday, I love you. And this is the morning of her birthday. So she responds, thank you, I love you too. And then states that she was woken up by her stepfather beating up her mother. She wrote, I can't take this shit anymore. He's going to kill her if she doesn't leave soon. And I don't want to be around. In a later text, she said, I want to kill him. Just take one of his guns and blow his fucking brains out. Wow. I mean, well, she did it. She did do it. She did do it. And some investigators are going to think, yes, this is a bad family situation, but is that premeditation? I mean, I feel like it is because... It's exactly what happened. That's exactly what she did. Yes. Okay, so we're going to take another break to talk about our final sponsor, Beta Brands. Beta Brands offers its customers comfortable work clothes that look professional but feel amazing. Their dress pant yoga pants are made with ponte fabric with dress pant detailing, faux zipper and pockets, front buttons, and belt loops. The dress pant yoga pants come in various styles like boot cut, straight leg, crop, leggings, and more. They are available in seasonal and limited edition styles, which are released monthly, but always in black, navy, gray, and khaki. The dress pant yoga pants have a style for every shape and size. I honestly love my dress pant yoga pants. They make it so easy to move around the classroom. And when it comes time for Dress Down Friday and I could wear my jeans... I never want to because the Beta brand dress pant yoga pants are more comfortable. Everyone at work loves them and what isn't to love? The dress pant yoga pants come in so many styles and colors it's hard to choose from. Beta brand is offering true crime couple listeners an amazing deal. Visit betabrand.com and use our code TCC to get 20% off your order today. That's betabrand.com, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com, and enter TCC to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants. How could millions of women be wrong? Okay, let's get back to the show. So here we have a complicated situation. At first, it appeared to be a case that police have seen far too many times parents killed because they were banning their teenage daughter from being with an older man. And the fact that Martinson ran a blog entitled Nightmare under the name Vamp Chick, in which he talked in detail about psychotic lovers killing to stay together, or short stories about torturing women, it seems like an open and shut case. But now Martinson's social media and cell phone records, although violent, do also seem to be Not premeditation, but a cry for help. So what was really going on here? But police are going to look into Thomas Ayers, and he had a rap sheet that was a little bit more extensive than Ryan Sisko. And the charges under his belt are a little bit more serious. So in the past, Thomas Ayers, Ashley Bartonson's stepfather, had been charged with domestic violence, kidnapping, and sexual assault. So he definitely wasn't the best of men, let's say. So police decide to ask the only other witnesses that were in the house that are still alive, Martinson's half-sisters, before they talk to Ashley Martinson. The three sisters were questioned separately by police with a child psychologist as a witness. The eldest of the sisters told authorities that their father was a very violent man. If they would misbehave, he would hit them very hard with a thick belt or his hand. Many times the girls would be hit so hard their behinds would blister. It was also common occurrence to be choked by their father until they could no longer breathe. On one occasion, he punched the middle sister so hard that she had a black eye for a week. The middle sister corroborated her eldest sister's stories adding that one time they were given a puppy. 
but that their father threw the puppy around and eventually shot the dog, telling the girls that he fed the dog to the bears. Um, he's cold-blooded. <laughs> yeah, it's he's definitely terrible. an abusive household, and it's a shame that before something happened that there was no proper intervention. But what was never talked about in the case, but what I could tell based on all the documentation surrounding it was that this family moved around a lot. So unfortunately, this happens where children fall through the cracks because families that move around, it's a little bit harder for professionals, especially like teachers, administrators, school nurses, to see patterns of abuse when a child's only there for half a year or a year. You know, it's it's a little difficult to do that. The girls also stated that they witnessed the abuse that took place between their mother and father. They claimed that several times a week, their father would hit their mother. On one occasion, the girls, now this is corroborated later by Martinson and the two eldest half-sisters, they were all interviewed separately, but all three girls said the same thing. The youngest, the two-year-olds, didn't, couldn't speak. So the three... While the four girls witnessed Ayers hit their mother to the ground, he climbed on top of her and pinned her down and placed a gun to her head. In front of her daughters, he then pretended to sexually assault her. And as she was sobbing, he yelled at her, Do you like that? It's just like your father did. So we can see what the girls were witnessing and then what they found out about their mother's life and their maternal grandfather. It's extremely traumatizing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just, it's sickening just to hear it. I know. I will add that members of Thomas Ayer's family claim that all of this is a lie and that was not how their relative and his wife lived. They claim that this is a stretched out lie told by Martinson to cover up for what she did. I don't know how true this is because when you have three different sisters all telling the same story at separate times... I don't know. And there's no motivation for the younger sisters to lie, especially what we'll find out later about how they feel about their sister, Ashley Martinson. I I don't think that the sisters would be covering up for Ashley whatsoever. Also, what I find absolutely ridiculous, it's mind-blowing, is that um, he was allowed to have guns with a rap sheet as long as his. No, he wasn't supposed to have a gun. Okay. All right. Because I was going to say. Be in the house. Okay. Because I was going to say, this is completely ridiculous that this guy has guns in the home. No, he wasn't supposed to have a gun. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. I also sincerely doubt that a mother would ever tell her nine and seven year old daughter that her father used to sexually ab- abuse her. So I, doubt I, that. I yeah. yeah, I don't think this is just knowledge that a nine and seven year old have. They can't make up a situation like that. No, they had to have heard it. Yeah, and saw it, unfortunately. So when police questioned Martinson, she told them the same stories her sister did. She explained how horrible it was to live in the house with heirs. She was treated differently because she was not his daughter. When asked why she was not physically abused, she responded that her stepfather told her he was afraid that if he started hitting her, he wouldn't be able to stop himself from killing her. So instead, he would make her watch him abuse her sisters and mother, knowing that there was nothing that she could do. That was her punishment. Martinson admitted that this was kind of the cycle her life took, being her mother's daughter. Her mother would date men that treated her horribly. At the age of nine, she was first sexually assaulted by one of her mother's boyfriends in his car as a neighbor watched on. Martinson says that The abuse continued for two years and that her mother knew about everything and that her mother would not leave the man but know what he liked to do and would send him in to bathe her and to tuck her in at night. Eventually she left, but it seems like the scars remained. And that's where I would think the animosity comes from and the hate that she has towards her mother. Right, for not leaving and putting her in these situations with these horrible men 
And this is kind of where the overkill might be explained. Yeah, because nothing's ever... The nothing rage was came ever out. All, yeah, and it was never able to come out properly. There was never any way of speaking about this. I mean, what they all both... What the mother let them both endure is ridiculous, and it's crazy. It's, it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. So, I mean, not justifying 31 stab wounds, but I'm just saying, that's where the... That's where the you know, the rage comes from. Oh, 100%. And I think that maybe Ashley's mother justified, okay, well, he's not sexually abusing my children, but he was extremely physically abusive. And we don't know if there was sexual abuse going on. He does have a past of kidnapping and sexual abuse in his rap sheet. So it's not like this is something that would be below him. You never know what it could have developed into, which is scary, and which is why I think the situation escalated the way it did so quickly. Definitely. So Martinson said about the abuse that she endured throughout her whole life that to cope, she turned within herself. And this is where the creation of the identity of Vamp Chick came from, right? Um, This is something that makes sense to me. I know that it's vicious and grotesque, and the things in the poem and the stories are pretty crazy, right? Definitely. But she's talking about what she wants. She's writing in the voice of an empowered female, I guess you could say, one who does the hurting and isn't the one getting hurt. Or she's writing about a couple that do not hurt each other, rather they wildly fit together and hurt anyone who would try and separate them. It's so far away from the life that she's leading. And it seems that this is what she wanted in life. You know, if you look beyond the the gore of it all, which I think is easier for us and our listeners to kind of do a little bit because we're that stuff doesn't like shock us. We're kind of into I, that horror I think, stuff. I think it's just such a way I think her writing, her poems, her writing I feel like I see through that dark stuff, and I see someone that's just looking for an outlet, right? To kind of just, you know, not come out and say, "Oh, this, this, and this was done to me," but you know, that the, is her you know, cry for help. That is her cry it for makes help. Sense. I mean, I mean, I understand it. It's just so hard because we're dealing with someone that just murdered two people that happened to be her stepfather and and her right, and left mother. her three siblings alone. In a house with her dead parents. And you also have to consider the fact that now she just made the rest of her sisters, you know, mother and fatherless. So it's a really Yeah, they're orphans now. Yeah, it's like, where do you draw the line here? Because you want to feel bad for this person. I know. But at the same time, we we know what she's done, and it's not something something to be proud of. Yeah, also, it's it's a very complicated case at this point. And then investigators are going to see that as they look into it more, and they're questioning all the witnesses is... It seemed so easy. And then when they meet her, it becomes so complicated. So after recalling the details of her life with her stepfather, police ask her to go through what happened on March 7, 2015. And eventually, now it's not the first story she gives, but she is going to walk them through everything that happened. She said that when she got home, ready to get all of her things and move in with a friend, to get away from her abusive house, her parents both confronted her about the relationship she had with Ryan Sisko. She had told them that he was younger, and they had found out that he wasn't from Facebook. They told her that they talked to him on Facebook and let him know that if he continued to contact her, that they would press charges against him. The three began to scream at each other. Thomas Ayers took away Ashley's phone and car keys, and told her that she wasn't going anywhere. Martinson ran up the stairs. She was desperate, she said. Her only escape from that house was her boyfriend, her job, and her communication with friends. She felt like her outlets were being taken from her. Before she went into her bedroom, she grabbed her stepfather's shotgun. That was in their bedroom. She shut the door behind her. She said that her intention was to commit suicide. She thought that she would show her mother and stepfather just what they were driving her towards by doing what they were doing. She had the gun pressed against her chin. Then she said she heard her stepfather coming up the stairs, continuing to yell at her. 
She said she realized then that it was over for her if he found her holding the gun, his prized possession, as she called it, and that he would go crazy. And that's just when she realized that he deserved to die more than she did. So when Thomas Ayers busted his stepdaughter's door open, he saw a 12-gauge shotgun pointed right at his chest. She pulled the trigger. At first, Martinson is going to say she fired two shots into her stepfather right away. However, after police tell her that they know the full story from her sisters, she admits that she only fired one shot and went back upstairs later to shoot him again after killing her mother. So she's going to claim that she didn't know that he was dead from the first shot. Like she was scared he was going to come back to life and keep abusing the family. So she shot him a second time. So after she shot her stepfather the first time, she ran down the stairs and said all she wanted was her mother, which is kind of, if this is true, that's very heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. However, halfway down the stairs, she said that she felt a pain in her leg and realized that her mother had stabbed her in the leg. And then this enraged her. Her mother kept screaming, why did you do that? Why did you kill him? And she thought to herself that she cares more about him than me. That's the way things had always been. And she started stabbing her mother. She didn't know how many times she did, but it was 31. And after she went back upstairs, she shot her stepfather again. She told her three siblings to stay inside the room, that they were going to play a game. And then she showered twice. She was in shock. After that, Martinson admits that she left the house. She intended to start a new life with Cisco in Tennessee. However, she now sits in an Indiana jail cell facing two murder charges. And the question is now, is this premeditated? Can she be tried as an adult? Was Ashley Martinson of sound mind when she committed these crimes, or was she a victim of post-traumatic stress syndrome? These are all great questions, mm-hmm. and it's hard for for us to sit here and try to come up with what should be done, or you know what I mean. Um, I find it hard to believe her whole story. Okay. And I feel bad about saying that because the facts are: is this child was neglected abused in any capacity like what no matter what capacity she was abused right. i'm just going to label it as abuse so right. whether it's neglect, neglect abuse you know whatever what happened so something just, bad this is an abused girl had no help the one support system that she's supposed to have her mother has done absolutely nothing to help this child so i even though i feel terrible <laughs> she's not innocent she's absolutely not innocent I think it is, though, hard for investigators and a judge and a jury to sit down and say, well, here's a 17-year-old kid's writing her poems and her, you know, mm-hmm. her little, you know, her right. dark writings and take that for premeditated murder. I agree. You know, from looking at it at first and listening to it, you can say, oh, absolutely. Like, without question. Mm-hmm. But... It's not her, like, it's not all about her mother and her father. You know, some of this was just random. Like, nothing was pinned. Oh, yeah, I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill my mom. I'm going to kill my stepdad. If she had would have said that, then I can totally say, without even a hesitation, it's premeditated murder. She said she was going to do it in her writings, and she literally carried it out in the same manner as well. Yeah. It's hard. It's like, it's just hard to find that in between, but she's not innocent. But I feel bad. I feel bad for someone like this. I completely agree with what you're saying. I find it hard to say out loud that I don't believe some of her story because I do sympathize with her so much with all the pain that she went through throughout her whole life. And a girl is supposed to have her mother there to protect her and to empathize with her and to help her go through the struggles of being a girl period and she never had that she never had that comfort and I like 
like you said, don't believe that her sending those text messages and writing the poems and writing the stories are premeditation. I think all of those things were a cry for help and attention-seeking behavior because she wasn't getting attention from her house. But I do think that she knew exactly what she was doing because she... I get the rage and stabbing her mother that many times because she was so angry. I can see that. I've seen it with many cases. But she did stab her 31 times. And she went back upstairs to shoot her stepfather again. And that makes it very hard for me to say that the intention wasn't murder because he might have been alive. And um, he wasn't. He was definitely dead. But if there's a possibility to save someone and you stop that person from being saved, to me, that's murder. Listen, she knew... (laughs) I think she knew when she grabbed that gun before she went in her room what she was going to do. What I'm saying is I don't... What I'm saying... The suicide thing is a very convenient story. That is is the part where she, in my opinion... She's lying about. I know. She w- uh, I mean, though- I don't want to assume that because I can. I think it's a cry for help because I have seen it as a high school teacher where s- teenagers do attempt suicide. And a, a botched suicide attempt is a massive cry for help. And do I think that this girl would use a suicide attempt for a a cry for help? Yeah, I do. I do I, think that. I know it's... I, we've we've done so many cases, right? Mm-hmm. Us here. Yeah. And, and we've had our audience listen. And I know that sometimes when we give an opinion, it could be not what the audience wants to hear. Right. But I have no problem saying my piece because I think that no matter what, there's going to be two sides that that agree and they disagree. Right. And I think that... She knew what she was doing when she closed that door with that gun. Yeah. I think that it's just too coincidental that... Right. Oh, I grabbed the gun. I go in my room. And now, you know, I'm going to try to commit suicide. And then I say to myself, fuck it, because he deserves to die over me. Right, because a suicidal thought wouldn't wouldn't switch over that quickly i see what you're saying yeah, and then oh now you, we can turn this into like a defense can turn this into oh she did it out of self-defense like you know what i'm saying i mean i'm going a little deeper no but that's not what they're gonna no, play no, though so. but i don't think that she didn't know what she was doing so and then the other part of it is this should she be tried as an adult or not i think that she a hundred percent knew what she was doing in murdering her parents. However, her plan afterwards shows that she's a 16-year-old girl because she thought, if I leave the state, I she truly believed that she could go now start a life with Ryan Sisko. And I think that that shows her immaturity and the fact that her frontal lobe is not fully developed and she thinks that, okay, everything's going to be okay now. So I think that shows... That she is not an adult. And it it really calls into question her decision-making abilities. So, is this a result of PTSD? Is this a result of being a 16-year-old child? Um, There's so many things. It's a very complicated case. What if we can say this? Mm Mm-hmm. Can me and you be on the same page that we think that she knew what she, that she knew what she was doing? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Can we say? Can we come to an agreement? Maybe that she should not be tried as an adult because that's what you're saying, and I'm 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 kind of in agreement with you. Right. Her actions do make you think she's not acting like an adult. No, I think she's she's acting as an abused sixteen year old girl. But now what? But now what kind of like and now in our society, like, what do we do? Like, this is a... Well, a... she definitely needs mental health facility. A good mental health facility. But her lawyers are going to try and use some strategies to, to her advantage. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to try and keep the trial in Indiana. 
because they know moving the trial to Wisconsin is going to be a big deal because of the Slenderman case that's taking place, right? That case still hadn't gone to trial yet, but people were basically calling for the heads of these two young girls. No mercy. So now her defense lawyer is like, oh my God, we can't send her to Wisconsin too because look, they're ruthless, right? There is no, oh, they're just kids. Oh, like there is none of that there for those two girls. So, I mean, the outcome of that case is that they did get, I think the one got a 40-year sentence, but all in mental health facilities, not in like a juvenile correction center and then eventually jail. It's all mental health, but it's a life sentence in a mental health facility. So her defense attorney didn't want to kind of take a chance with that. So they wanted to stay in Indiana. That's where she was arrested. But that didn't work. And she was brought back to Wisconsin. So this is when her lawyer is going to tell her that taking a plea deal is probably going to be better than her going to trial because of all the things that you and I just discussed. So the district attorney gave it to Martinson and her attorney straight. It would be hard to prove that this was not premeditated due to the stories, poems, text messages, and Facebook posts. A jury in Wisconsin would 100% take those things into account. The deal was that Martinson would plead guilty to two counts of second-degree homicide, which is still felony murder, but it's a charge that involves a dangerous crime where death results from that crime but this is any intentional murder without premeditation. So they're taking the premeditation away from her, but a malice afterthought. And that is what Ashley Martinson had with that second shot and the overkill of her mother. That is what did it. Right. So the state would clearly be able to prove this. And the defense attorney is kind of going to tell Ashley Martinson, like without a doubt, they are going to. So the plea deal was plead guilty to those those two things and will recommend 40 years with the possibility of parole, which is terrifying to a seven. She's going to be 57. That's yeah. yeah. Your life's over. But you know what? You took life away. And um, so Martinson is going to agree to the plea deal. However, the judge is going to take a lot of things into consideration. Um the years of abuse, testimony from a child psychologist who talked to all of the sisters. He also reads letters. And Ashley Martinson, in a letter to the judge, is going to say that she feels awful, that she left her three sisters as orphans. However, she knows that no matter what the system holds for them, it's a better life than what they had with their parents. And in an interesting turn of events, the sisters, even though they backed up Ashley Martinson's story about everything that was taking place at the home. And I guess this is because kids, when you are brought up in a life like that, you know nothing but that life and you still have, you cling to the idea that that's your mother and father. No matter what they do to you, you still love them as your mother and your father. So the girls do say that they wish that Ashley Martinson would spend the rest of her life in jail, that she would rot in there. That's the letters that they wrote to the judge. So Ashley Martinson, in turn, in the letters that she wrote, says that she hopes eventually that her relationship with her sisters can be better over time. She hopes that they'll forgive her and understand when they get older. So it's very, it's like, it's heartbreaking, you know, that happened to the family and, and it, the devastation that was caused is massive, but then you also have to think what kind of devastation would be caused if they weren't dead? And that's like this crazy open-ended question that we'll never have the answer to. Definitely. But the judge is gonna, gonna be lenient on Ashley Martinson. And on June 10th, 2017, at 18 years old, Ashley Martinson was sentenced to 23 years in prison. I mean, that's pretty good for what she did. Yeah. Um, So after the sentencing, sentencing, Martinson is going to give a number of interviews 
where she's going to say that she's truly enjoying her time in prison, that when she killed her parents, she felt the chains that held her down were now broken. She said specifically, I remember pointing the tip of the gun against his head, and I pulled the trigger. Boom. For the first time in my life, I felt that I was free. It's sad. It's very sad. Um, it's it's just, it's just very confusing. I mean, it's it's one of those cases where, like I said before, you know what she's done. You know it's bad. Right. But you feel guilty. You feel so bad for this girl, how the way she was brought up, and the fact that no one was there to help her. Yes. It's, it's truly devastating because it's such a heartbreaking case before the murder, and it's a heartbreaking case after the murder. Absolutely. So it's 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 just really sad. I think the only thing that I would like want them to do, not just with this case, but in every case, and the judge and what I mean by that is what the judge did. He was very lenient. And I'll tell you why. Just very mm-hmm. quickly. I think that when you have these child murders, ch- these children that are committing murders, they are not developed. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what they're doing. Whatever influences right. that, that may have caused them to do it, like outside sources or whatever, I I understand. And I think that it, they sh- it shouldn't be – I think that what I'm trying to say is they should all have a possibility of parole, you know, at some point. And maybe, you know, first-degree murder should just be off the table depending on the circumstances. I think that they should have the ability to be like, hey – I did this. I'm older. Can I have like a... Right. Can I try to appeal? You know what I'm saying? Like I don't know. I, I feel like they should because now even though they've killed people... Well, it also... It's up to the discretion of the judge. That's really what it is. I think that what I'm trying to say is obviously based on what has happened in these cases, mm-hmm. but I think that they should have the possibility of parole. It's... it's it that come- is... That is one of the most tricky questions of our justice system of whether or not and it's up to the district attorney and it's up to the judge when it comes to sentencing about trying children as adults because it does become very complicated that's a very open-ended question and there's so many really interesting cases that we can cover that's gonna kind of go over the same topic yeah and it's hard because i feel like you know, if we talked about another case, I might feel completely different about right. it. Right. There are some cases where I have seen someone who's a teenager tried as an adult, and in my head, I'm like, good. Yeah, right. Exactly. But but, but this, in this one's case, a little different. Feel, my right. heart bleeds for her. I did, It does. So, like, in a case like this, it would make me sway the other way. Where right. I it's situational. So. Yeah. And that's what's tricky about the justice system and the crimes that are committed because... It's all situational, and it also is dependent on the district attorney and the judge. So we really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a, It's a sad one, and we'd love to hear your feedback on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter. And before we go, we do want to thank our September Patreons for donating to us. So that would be Kirsten, Julie Essen, Taryn Quigley, $15. Thank you. Woo! <laughs> Ashley Tolliver-Jones, Cynthia Morales, Maura Nike, Akinlaw, and Jennifer Mertlick. We just want to thank you guys for being our new donators on Patreon. And if you want to donate to us, you can do so on patreon.com slash couple. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>